Hey guys, and welcome to the second episode of the podcast. This one's going to be a little bit different. Doing some self-reflection on my life so far, I can think of certain people who've had distinct influences on the course of my life and who've played a part in shaping the person I am today. The person I interviewed today is no exception. She's a radiation oncologist in my hometown, Texas, but I actually didn't meet her through medicine. She actually goes to my church. And uh, that's why the conversation you're about to hear doesn't just focus on medicine. It's centered around caretaking and healing, life and death, religion, and spirituality. Although she comes from a Christian background, don't think that you have to be Christian or even religious for that matter to find value in her conversation. Her attitudes and disposition towards life are universal to anyone who has an appreciation for the spiritual. This was definitely a fun one to record, and I'm super excited for you guys to experience it. palliative care and I think there's a lot of role for spirituality there and that comes into play all the time as well as kind of figuring out what you want to do I think that's also relevant and for those two areas of the conversation (laughs) how I came to medicine is sort of a spiritual answer and how I how I see myself and my role as a doctor is a spiritual answer so okay if that helps you perfect I'm also just looking at how much sound we're outputting okay you can hear me well Mm mm-hmm Okay. Do you mind moving a bit closer to the mic? <laughs> so scared of the mic. Okay. Um, yeah. So usually how I start um, these episodes is I have a after post, after recording, I'll have some post edits to give a short introduction. For you specifically, I'll introduce you as someone ambiguous, uh, my mentor. And so okay. <laughs> no names will be divulged at all here. Okay. Um, no problem. Um, but yeah. Um, Are you ready to start? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'll just start off with the first question that we talked about. Just a little bit about yourself, your background, and you specifically. um, If you can share just a little bit about your childhood, your background, your upbringing, and what, what values were most important to you as you grew up, and maybe as a second part to that question, what carried over to your, your life as an adult now? I think growing up, um, it was always very important in my family to pursue education, and that was always kind of the goal. Um, I think my parents, from the very beginning, wanted me to go to medical school, and uh, for me, I was not at all interested in medicine. (laughs) Um, But the funny thing is I always loved science. I I was good at it, and I knew I could do it, and I loved it, uh, specifically physics. Mm. And um, But on top of that, I also really loved literature and English. And um, I loved writing, and that was definitely my passion growing up. Um, I think that a lot of that still translates to what I do today, Um, especially kind of the specific field of medicine that I'm in is very heavily based in physics. Um, So that carries over a lot, and that's something that I really love about my job. Um, But especially knowing that my family instilled from the very early age, not just a love of education, but the importance of helping other people, which was very Mm -hmm. much a religious it was in that sphere. We did a lot of community service projects and things like that growing up. And so getting to see that world, I think, was very important. Plus, my mom was a nurse, and she was also, um, she worked two jobs and uh, worked very hard to help our family. And uh, my dad was essentially a chemist. Mm. Um, and 
Uh, so science was very important to him. And so part of my love of physics actually came from him because he had always said that if he had was able to do any job in the world, he would be a physicist, but they didn't make much money. So he decided to do a chemistry degree instead. And um, I really enjoyed talking to him even from when I was very young. And he was the one who taught me first about atoms and molecules and really fed that interest early on. Um, and so all of that directly translates into what I do today. Awesome. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but we had this conversation maybe a couple of years ago, how you tried physics once, didn't like it or didn't get it, tried it maybe a second time and didn't get mm-hmm. it and or didn't like it. But maybe it was a third time, whether it was right before medical school or in college where you took physics and then it really stuck. And obviously it, it plays a large part, or at least your appreciation towards physics mm-hmm. plays a large role in your day-to-day um, responsibilities. You mentioned religion just uh, a little bit in your upbringing, and we know each other through our place of worship, through church. That's how we met. Could you tell me more about your religious upbringing as well? Because really what I want to do with this is dive into the spiritual nature but behind your day-to-day and your practicing medicine. And if if you have some insight onto your childhood and even religion nowadays, what that means to you, um, I'd love to hear it. So even though I grew up in um, an Orthodox family, um, I grew up in a place where religion wasn't really allowed. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Middle East. And so um, for me, religion was something different because we moved when I was probably about seven years old. And um, I remember going to church with my parents and it was like anyone else, you go to church because your parents make you go to church. Uh, But then when you move overseas into a place where people are literally, you know, they can, I had friends that were deported, you know, for practicing their religion. Um, we had one of um, one of the people in our in our church, you know, quote unquote church group. Um, while we were there, was arrested and put mm. in jail for six months for bringing in religious tracts to the country. And every time we would meet, we'd meet every Friday, and we would wrap our Bibles in newspaper and carry them in shopping bags so that people wouldn't know what they were. And uh, we would meet at someone's house every week and worship together. And it was a completely non-denominational group. It wasn't an Orthodox worship. It was, we had people who were Marthama and Catholics and Pentecostals and us. Um, There wasn't anybody else who was Orthodox actually, Um, but we all got together anyway. And growing up in that type of atmosphere where you go to church not because you have to, and in fact, you're discouraged and it's it's dangerous to go to church. That really makes you realize what is important to you as a family and what isn't. And um, religion was very important to our family, but not in kind of the orthodox traditional way of speaking. It became very pared down to what was really important, and it just came down to our belief in Christ himself and how that translates across denominations. And it kind of took out all of the nonsense that goes along with with some denominational, I think, arguments sometimes. No, for sure, because those can get heated. <laughs> yes, they can. They can. And especially um, especially just in our culture, I think that's a really big problem. And um, I never experienced any of that. To me, these were just the people that loved God as much as we did and came every Friday and we worshiped together and had dinner together and grew up together. And it was a really wonderful atmosphere where it was just no nonsense. You know, it was just real. And that was great. Um, I didn't really appreciate that until I came back and suddenly you don't have that anymore. Suddenly everyone's in their own little world and everybody else is seen sort of as a stranger or as a threat. Um, And I missed having that 
just very basic understanding of what religion was, um, aside from, I guess, the high production of church normally. Right. And so has that always been like a constant in your life? Were there ups and downs um, uh, with your relationship towards religion and all that? Definitely. Um, I think when I was really young, especially going to that group every week, um, I did have a little bit of faith. Even when I was like six or seven years old, I remember that. But as I grew older, you get a little bit more involved in your own interests in life. And so it was a little bit easier to put God on the back burner until I came to a point in high school and early college where I really wasn't even sure what I believed anymore. I didn't know if God really existed. Um, and I personally just went through a very meaningful moment where it became very clear that God does exist. Mm. And um, that completely changed my thinking. Um, and it really pushed me to start learning more about who God was and who Christ was and what I really believed and how it impacted my daily life. And it just completely changed my world and my understanding of who I was and what I was doing here. And I think all of that translates to how you choose a career. Because when you start to understand that you have a purpose, you know, you have a purpose for being here in this world and that God puts you here for a reason, um, it suddenly makes your decisions much more meaningful and um, it helps you to not think so much of yourself and not to be so self-centered and to understand how God intends to use you in other people's lives. Hmm. And so on the, on the topic of making life more meaningful, you as a radiation oncologist, could you walk us through what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, the patients that you see, um, what those patients generally look like, and what your responsibility is? What, what, what your responsibilities are to these patients? I think the most important moment is when an oncologist meets a patient and their family. And um, my spirituality plays a big role in that. Walk, simple things like walking in, looking somebody in the eye, and smiling, and them being able to see that you care. That's really, really important in establishing that initial rapport because in our field, unlike a lot of other areas of medicine nowadays, you really do develop a deep relationship with your patients and mm -hmm. you see them through over many weeks, months, or even years of dealing with their illness in its various forms. Um, and you develop a relationship that becomes meaningful to both of you so that it becomes hard when they are getting through to the end of that point. Um, and it becomes hard to let them go. So it, there's a lot of... It's an emotional type of job for sure. And you have to be able to like be emotional and be in that space and be comfortable with feeling vulnerable along with your patients, but also being able to let it go. Otherwise, if you take that home with you, it becomes very difficult to get through your day. Mm. How do you, how do you stop? Um, how do you prevent yourself from taking it home with you? Cause I'm sure you see tough, tough cases and patients that you really care for. How do you, at the end of the day, how do you prevent that from coming home with you? It's hard. Um, and that's where I, I, I literally pray for my patients. I pray for guidance and knowing kind of how, what to do for them. Um, and just lifting them up in prayer, I think, is an important part of me allowing it, allowing myself to be taken out of that picture. Because when you give some, anything up to God, you're acknowledging that we don't have control. We think we do in medicine. You know, we think that we're making changes or creating 
solutions for people, but ultimately the healing doesn't come from us. We're just a tool. And allowing myself to remember that is a really important part of that process of being able to deeply engage with somebody, but at the same time understanding that their outcomes in some way, it's not directly related to what I'm doing or not doing. Their outcomes are already decided and I'm just kind of along for the ride. Mm. That helps sort of separate myself from it because it's not ultimately in my hands. Well, that's that's a very unique way of putting it. Their outcomes are already decided, but you're you're just a tool in that specific moment mm-hmm. of their care. And what and what where exactly is this point in in their overall care? Is this after they've seen they've after they've been diagnosed, MRI scans, they've talked to their um, oncologist, and now they're here for radiation therapy. Where, where exactly do you see these patients? And are they sicker, or do they become temporarily sicker after you see them? Usually we get involved pretty late in the process, right. and that's actually one of the things I love about radiation oncology. It's something that is more it's more treatment-minded than it is diagnostic-minded. Um, and in medicine, I think those are two very distinct things that happen or different areas that people find themselves in. There's some overlap, of course, but generally speaking, radiation oncology means that they're coming to us with a diagnosis already established. Otherwise, they wouldn't be referred to us if they don't already have a known diagnosis of cancer or something else that we can radiate and help. Um, so they come to us with that part of it already done. So I love it because I don't really like the diagnostic side of medicine. That's not really where I find my interest or passion. So yeah. I uh, engage with them when they're ready for treatment or they want to know what we can do about this devastating thing that's just been told to them. Um, but most of the time I'm not giving, I'm not usually the one that's giving them the news of cancer. Um, my role is more to help them after they've dealt with that blow a little bit and help them come to terms with it and understand what that means, how it might affect them day to day. And in terms of what they're trying to accomplish with treatment, sometimes it's cure, you know, and then you go into a deep conversation about what's going to happen to them so that they understand what their next few weeks or months might look like um, and helping them understand the side effects of treatment. And it's a slightly different conversation when they come to you and they're already past that stage where cure is no longer possible. And now you're talking about palliative care, which is a very large part of what we do in radiation oncology. And it's one of the areas that I feel most passionate about. It's actually the people where cure really isn't an option anymore. And they're coming to you for help with a specific problem. And that's where I think radiation really shines. And, um, It's also nice because most of the time when we use doses that are low enough to help with symptoms, they don't often cause too many problems, and we walk with them and help them understand that this is part of the journey. And, um, you know, usually, fortunately, most of the side effects are temporary in that setting, and so we just help them with that using medications or, you know, ointments or whatever else we need to do to help with side effects. Yeah. Um, I think death is one of the mo- more interesting and one of the most interesting things that you can think about philosophically. Um, and also a side note, I don't know if you know this, but I majored in philosophy in undergrad in, in college. And a large part of that was actually because you told me that some of the best doctors that you knew actually majored in philosophy. That one, um, that one sentence kind of permeated a lot of my college career. Um, but 
in, in philosophy classes, we talked about life and death a lot. We talked about meaning and naturally death just comes out, sticks out to me as one of the most, most interesting topics to talk about. You probably think about life and death on a day-to-day basis, especially with the patients that you treat. This is one of the most pressing, pressing topics to you. Um, how do you, how, how much of your job is communicating that to your patient and how much, because you told me that at some point or some patients are very late in the game that treatment cannot, cannot help them at all. At what point does communication become the primary focus of your treatment and how do you communicate expectations of life versus getting ready for death? I think that's one of the hardest things to do in medicine and most of the time, all through my training, you just kind of get negative examples of mm. what you really probably don't want to do because doctors in general, I think, are afraid of death right? and they don't handle it well and they see it as a personal defeat, like a mistake or like um, you didn't do your job well enough and that's why somebody died. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm just saying that it's a lot of times, again, go, going back to that spiritual concept, the idea that when it's someone's time, it's their time. And my job isn't necessarily to stop that because I know that death is part of life. My job is to help somebody find dignity in that space and to be able to transition. And so um, I think what people often want is a direct conversation. And most of the time, providers don't want to have a direct conversation because it's uncomfortable. And that's what I really love. It sounds really weird and morbid, but mm. I really love having those conversations because a lot of times, even though they're very late in the game, no one has ever talked to them about that. Right. No one has ever said, this cancer will probably be the thing that kills you. And the way I usually phrase it is, I don't know when that's going to be. Nobody can predict that, but there's no harm in preparing for it. It doesn't make it come any faster. And it allows your family some peace of mind because when you make decisions about, you know, an advanced directive, having um, that written down, you're taking that burden off of your family and you want to be able to make those decisions now while you're still able to, instead of not thinking about it, not writing it down, not having a formal discussion with somebody and then allowing some extreme event or tragedy to happen. And then suddenly the burden is on your family to make those decisions. I think when people understand it more in terms of helping their family, they're a little bit more likely and willing to face it. Mm. And sometimes you see the opposite problem where it's the patient has already come to terms with it and their family has not. <laughs> and many times what I, my role is is to help the family adjust to what is really dif- devastating and difficult. But it makes it so... As long as you're having that initial rapport, that ability to, for them to understand you are on their side, you're trying to help them, that's really, really important. And um, sometimes you get a lot of time to establish that. You know, when I see patients that, you know, I have patients now I treated 10 years ago, and, um, you know, now they're coming back with metastatic disease, but we've had all of that time to sort of get to know each other. So when I bring up the conversation, it's not so awkward. Other times patients come to me and they're already at that end stage and I just have one visit to try yeah. and make them comfortable. Mm. And um, The pressure's on. Yes. But you know what? Like I said, most of the time by the time I see them, they want to have that conversation. They just want to know. 
Yeah. They're scared. They want to know what is it like to die? Um, what do they, what are some things that can make it easier? And that's exactly what I can do. I can help them through that transition because it's not easy for them or their family. But I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, a lot of times when patients do pass on, I get phone calls from their family after the fact, you know, and I'm still in touch with a lot of the families. Um, and I think that says a lot. That means that you actually did impact somebody during their time of like real need. Yeah. And I think that relationship, it can continue to provide comfort and support for the family, even when their loved one has passed on. But you can't do that if you don't develop a good relationship from the beginning. And that's where in radiation oncology, you have the space to do that. A lot of fields in medicine, you don't. So it's, um, yeah, it's a real privilege to be able to do what I do for sure. Yeah. It's crazy that you mentioned that some patients and families just want an honest picture of what's going to happen because they probably haven't been told up until the point they see you. And the certainty of death in some cases is like a burden being lifted off your shoulders so that you can make the right preparations for, for the eventual mm-hmm. when, when that time comes. I, I did want to ask, um, obviously spirituality, religion, and medicine are very, very intertwined in your day-to-day life and you find meaning from those so visibly. Um, how has one changed the other or vice versa? How has your spirituality changed your outlook on medicine, how you practice day-to-day and maybe how you practice day to day, whether that's changed your overall outlook on life, religion, family, and spirituality. How, how do those two kind of affect each other? I think my spirituality affects my practice of medicine by, like I said, allowing me to let go mm. when it's time and helping me to understand that I am not the one in control. And um, that is a little bit of a relief because one of the hardest things in medicine is this feeling that somebody else's life depends on what you think or what you do. And that's not an easy burden to carry. And, you know, in, in the religious world, I think you can understand your role or in the religious context, I should say, you can understand your role a little bit differently. And that helps me get through my day to day a lot easier because it gives me, I don't spend as much time second guessing myself. And if I have a gut feeling about something, I, I trust that. I listen to it because I think instinct is actually very important in medicine. When you walk into a room, the instinct to be able to say, this person is not well. Wow. Um, I think one of the most powerful statements um, or lessons that I learned from my internal medicine attendings were, uh, was one particular doctor told me, you know, when you walk into a room, mm-hmm. it's very important to be able to say that patient is ill appearing. And that seems silly or simple, but it's not. You have a feeling when you walk in that someone is either sick or they are not sick. And that is the very first thing that you need to decide how toxic appearing is that person because it changes everything that you, all the data that you then interpret from that point on. So your first impression is very important. And I think that's where spirituality can sometimes help. It's just sort of trusting that instinct a little bit more than just your own logic a lot of times. And um, you asked also how my how my medical life affects my spirituality, right? It helps me rely more on God (laughs) because you realize how little you're actually in control of everything, of anything really. Um, And it, I see miracles every day and things that I can't explain all the time. 
Um, sometimes those are happy things and sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's a person that I would have completely expected by all rights, that person should have died a long time ago and they do fine. You know, they do great and they make this truly miraculous recovery. And other times where I think this is, they're going to be perfectly fine. They should recover completely and not have any problems. And that person will have every single thing under the sun happen to them as a result. And it's, you can't predict it, you know, um, I think that's part of the art of medicine is getting better at predicting those things. But when you see that happen every day, you just realize like we're just not important in this grand scheme of things. We're just here to be a part of something much bigger than ourselves. When you, do you teach other medical students or other residents? Is there a way, do people come to you to learn how you practice medicine? And if so, do you, what, what, what do you, what, what do you tell these students what do you tell the residents? What what points do you try to make stick? We do, actually. We have a lot of um, medical students as well as residents I teach on, on a daily basis. Um, and then we have fellows that come in even from other disciplines, medical oncology, even palliative, fel- palliative care fellows come through. Um, and especially with the palliative care fellows, like they, they are in that field because they understand. But a lot of times... I'm able to show them what radiation can do because our field is so small. Nobody really knows that we even exist a lot of times, let alone what we have to offer patients. And it's really powerful to bring in a whole group of people that have no idea what we do (laughs) and suddenly give them these tools and just say, here, here is, I can help with bleeding. I can help with pain. I can help with paralysis. Like I can do all of these things with the tools that I have. All you have to do is know when to call. Mm. That's really one of, I think, the most important things that I can do is disseminate knowledge about this awesome field. And letting people know that you're yeah, a resource. Exactly, that there's so much that we can do for patients that don't involve cure. And when they are seeing a palliative care doctor, um, that's they're not interested in cure at that point, but that's where we shine, symptom control. Um, so I think that's really powerful. And then introducing medical students to the world of radiation oncology. I love that mm-hmm. um, because, again, most of them have no idea, you know. Um, I know that I certainly wasn't exposed very much to radiation oncology in medical school. Uh, a lot of people that I know that are in the field now, it's just a random chance that allows them to see this world that really is amazing. And so every time I meet a medical student, I feel like that's their window. That might be the one thing that they need to be like, hey, wait a second, this is this really cool thing I didn't even realize was there. Um, and so I I just try to expose, the, for medical students, I just try to expose them as much as possible to like the beauty of what we do. Because most medical students get into medicine because they want a relationship with their patients. And the truth is in medicine, that doesn't always happen in yeah. many, 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 many fields. You don't have that anymore. And um, radiation oncology, I think, is one of the last bastions of that where you can really spend time with somebody and not feel pressured to, like, just produce and also to have a longitudinal relationship. Uh, but the thing I love about it is it, it, there's, a, there's an end point, right, on, like, like internal medicine or something um, where you're dealing with diabetes for 50 years or whatever. Right. I have a, like a small window. I get to know them. I see them every day for several weeks and then uh-huh. we're done with that project. And then they uh-huh. move on to the next thing, which is, is there's an end point to the task, which I really personally like. Yeah. Um, and so teaching medical students, not just about what radiation is, but also how radiation is different from other fields in medicine and what the benefits are. I really love that because a lot of times they have no idea. And then they see that 
in comparison to other things when and, and other fields when they explore medicine a bit more and they come back to radiation like yeah you're right like this is a different world to actually get to know your patients like you do that's awesome mm-hmm. um i've talked to a lot of physicians a lot of them regret um, the specialty that they went into oh, yeah. <laughs> so many in uh, fact so i have that yep <laughs> a lot of people that I know. And so many well. people actually dissuade you from going into medicine yeah, also. They're like, if I could do it all again, I would never go into medicine. Nobody should go into medicine unless they really love it and they don't think of they can't think of anything else they want to do. Exactly. It's heartbreaking. But I mean, just the way you talk about it, I could see that you're so you're so enamored by your practice day to day and you love it so much. Um it's it's also cool the the end point that you mentioned. I haven't heard of radiation oncology being presented in that way. Yeah, they're like little bite sized uh-huh. things. Because the truth is after a while, like, you know, there's there is such a thing as too much of any one person um it's nice to feel like okay i'm gonna see you and have this really intense relationship because that's how you get to know somebody right is dealing with their problems and getting to know their wife and they bring their you know grandkids in tow for the appointment and you get to know their whole family but then you're done with your task and a lot of times that sense of completion is really important to personal fulfillment at least for me and everyone's a little bit different but for me i need like an end point Otherwise, I, it just is very unsatisfying. Um, and I think that's a really important thing when you're trying to figure out what you want to do in life is trying to find something that ticks all the boxes of your personality. Because if you believe that everybody is born to do something, then the things that you love, um, the things that you hate, the things that kind of make you interested or passionate, those are all built into this thing that ultimately will become your career. So the more you learn about yourself in college and in high school, um, about who you are, what you love and what you don't love, the easier it will become to recognize that thing when you find it, whether that's medicine or something else, it, it should be something that you love to do. And I always, I, I liken it to kind of, it's like falling in love. It's like, you know, you can choose to be married to somebody that you just sort of find. And a lot of people think I'll just be you know, I could live with this person. Right. That's very different from like, you have found the person that God has created for you. Like you literally are created to be with this other person and they are created for you. And um, finding your passion in life is kind of like that. When you find it, it's like falling in love. You just recognize it and it's something that inspires you and drives you daily. And you're right. Unfortunately, a lot of people in medicine don't feel that way. And it is very sad. But it's the reality of a world where it's a lot of work to get into medical school. It's a lot of work when you're in. Mm. And then it's a lot of work when you're out. And it's a very long road. And it feels like very delayed satisfaction. Um, and I I think that's that's really sad. But unfortunately, a lot of people get into that hole where you feel like, you can't really get out of it. You've invested so much of your time and energy into this one thing that one day, if you ever wake up and realize this isn't for me, a lot of people feel like it's too late to do anything else and oh, they just stick sure. with it. Yeah, because yeah. one of the committed steps that you're taking is accruing all that debt. Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> all the debt. Exactly. And, you know, it's not to say that you can't figure something out, but the truth is um, there's so many things in medicine Medicine isn't like a black, because if you asked me like when I was younger, do you want to be a doctor? I mean, my answer was always no, I don't want to be a doctor. It didn't seem very interesting to me. And the the key is understanding that there are so many niches in this world. Um, You can usually find something, but you have to keep your net, like cast your net wide 
to have enough experiences to realize what you like and what you don't. You have a very short time to figure it out, but you can go back later. People do second residencies and, you know, once they figure out what it is, sometimes you don't know right off the bat. It's frustrating. You know, you feel like you spend a lot of time, but um, that is something that you can change and that if it's, if you find something that is your passion, Mm. you should pursue that in my opinion. But yeah, that's not an easy thing to, not an easy pill to swallow. I know. After all that. (laughs) If... If only if if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah, um, I think that's what I'm kind of looking forward to in medical school, trying to find that niche and trying to find where I'm most interested in. Because I hear this advice all the time: if if it's something you're interested in, the day to day will be so fun, will be easy. Um, that's true. So I've also heard that the bad things only get worse over time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so pick something that you you know the bad things aren't are bearable. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to inspire you, but also not drive you crazy. And that's hard to find. But that's where, you know, like your spirituality and your understanding of like you are, you have a calling to do something, mm-hmm. that your life and your job are a service to other people, that helps with some of the bad stuff too. Okay. Speaking about speaking about the bad things, you mentioned a little bit, you mentioned um, a bit about what that kind of looked like a, a, a bit before, but can you tell me what the happy moments in your day-to-day or even in your practice looks like? What What that looks like with patients and some of the bad moments. What is that? Obviously, obviously death, but how does that manifest itself? Hmm. So I think the bad moments, you know, death is usually the, an obvious one. Another one is a, you know, side effects. Mm. You know, you always, we always try to get our, get through our job and not create problems for people. Do no harm first, right? But sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes in order to treat the cancer, you're going to cause side effects. And that's always been really hard for me. I feel like I should be able to get away with a completely free pass for my patients. Um, But the truth is they'll have side effects. And so managing expectations is actually hard. And um, for some, it's, it's pretty natural for people to feel like, if you tell them about a problem up front, then they're more likely to be okay with it on the back end. Mm. Um, and so sometimes when they don't get that, because it's hard, you can't predict what's going to happen in any one person. You try to be as comprehensive as possible, give them this laundry list of problems, but then it's not necessarily something they're taking in in that moment sure. either. Um, so that's actually a bad moment for me. It's like going back and trying to explain why somebody has a side effect. And so I think it's always better to set low expectations, right? Under promise and over deliver. Mm. So I try to paint a bad picture up front. Uh, and in the end, if they say that wasn't so bad, you scared me for nothing. I'm like, yeah. That's I'm, a win. Yep. That's a win for me. <laughs> exactly. I'll take that. Uh, I would much rather be wrong is what I tell my patients. Um, and uh, I think when that doesn't happen and you have a, a terrible side effect that can happen with radiation and dealing with that, I think is a really bad moment. That's hard for me personally. Mm. Um, other moments that are harder are just kind of the mundaneness of it, you know, just like paperwork, mm. paperwork and paperwork and paperwork oh my God. and uh, red tape and feeling like, you know, you want to do something for somebody and you can't because of X, Y, Z logistical or, you know, financial reason. That's really tough. Um, and so I think those are probably my top three things just because the, be- the, the highs of it, though, are... I think when, for me, in my job also, it's a lot of teaching too. 
So I really love the moment when a student or a resident understands a concept that they didn't before. I find that particularly, I love that. And I think, um, I feel the same way about a patient when they have a benefit, like their pain goes away, or the first time someone's able to walk again after coming in, you know, with a spinal cord compression. Um, those are pretty big moments for me that I love very much. And then when patients just, uh, when they tell you that you have exceeded their expectations, they came in and they were afraid or that they came in and they were angry and they walk out and they're like, we love your clinic. We love what you've done. Like this was a life changing experience, especially for, you know, with our patients, a lot of them are isolated and they come here and they find a community that they can plug into and that can sometimes be life-changing for them in ways that have nothing to do with their cancer. I have patients that like, you know, they they basically become friends in the waiting room and then after that they they still hang out. They wow. try to book their follow-up appointments at the same, same time, time, right? So they can see each other. Um and I love that. I I think that's so valuable cuz then you know you're not just impacting their health, but their well-being and that's pretty powerful. So I love those moments too. Awesome. Um you, you talked about it just a little bit too, and I'd like to pick your brain on it too. Um, red tape, bureaucracy, you're an advocate for patients. Mm-hmm. In what ways are you not able to perform your job as, as you intended to or as you wish? I'm sure sometimes you want to achieve a certain type of outcome with your patients, but it's not always possible, either in your specialty or in medicine at large. Could you speak about that? Sure. Um, I think for my specialty in particular... It's most frustrating when you know somebody has cancer, but you can't prove it. And it's like you walk in. They Does see, that happen? Oh, yeah. You really? See, yep. They, you have patients where you have a tumor that's it's very obvious. It's growing. It's, they have the right clinical history huh. um, for you know, risk factors. And they, you know, something is very characteristic on imaging. But it's in a location that's too hard to biopsy, or they try to biopsy and it comes back inconclusive, or even worse, when they can't get a biopsy at all because of logistical issues or insurance issues or something else. Um, That's really hard. I I find that very, very frustrating in medicine in general, Um, but in my field especially, because you're just watching this tumor grow and... Um, sometimes, you know, we treat empirically and that's kind of our, that's our bandaid on that problem. Um, it's like, well, we know clinically we're making a clinical diagnosis that this is probably cancer. Here are the reasons why. Do you want to do treatment, um, for something that we believe but can't prove? Um, it's not a great solution, but I'd rather do that than watch somebody's tumor progress. Right. So Um, are you, are you able to quantify that? Like if you had 10 patients that you saw, how many, how many of those patients would be smooth sailing versus how many of those would have hiccups along the way in terms of their treatment plan? That's really hard. I don't know if I have a, I don't know if I have a number that I could quantify. It's probably, I don't know if I had to guess like one in 50. Oh. It's not that often. Okay. Most patients come in and they have pretty much everything kind of squared away. Okay. And the process has not been that complicated. Mm. But um, there are so many factors at work. A lot of them are patient-related, socioeconomic issues or um, issues with anxiety, um, issues with just not wanting to engage the healthcare system. Um, Those are all problems. And, uh, you know, a lot of times patients are in denial. And that also delays care. So I 
even though it doesn't happen very often, but you can kind of predict when you see a person if they have some of those things that would have led to that, you know? Right. And even if it's one out of 50 with a lot at stake with you're talking about life and death and, and stage treatment, I'm sure that one out of 50, you you remember that you remember those patients. And that's where, like I said, sometimes you just, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty Mm. on some level with what you do. Because if you wait for something to be proven all the time without a shadow of a doubt, then you're probably waiting too long. Like if you always have the answer for every person, it probably means that you're just not being bold enough with your treatment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not a comfortable thing, but you have to learn how to get used to being, feeling a little uncomfortable. Wow. Um, I kind of want to wrap it up by talking about questions that may be a bit large scale, top level. Um, but one of these, and I really want to get your answer on it because I think it will be very insightful into how you practice medicine, how you view life. Um, that question is what really matters to you in the end? What makes you happy? Um, what are the things in life that bring you joy? Mm, my family brings me the most joy. Uh, I know that's a, you know, pat answer, but it's really not in my opinion. It's, it's true. Um, I'm blessed and I have a really wonderful supportive husband Mm -hmm. and, um, it's really nice to be able to come home and share what has been difficult in my day. Um, and I think that brings me a lot of comfort in addition to just joy. And I love, like I said, teaching is very fulfilling to me. And, um, knowing that patients have a good experience, I, I find all of that, that brings me joy because I love my job. I love what I do so much. And I really, I wouldn't do anything else in the world. Um, so I find satisfaction a lot in my job and my identity as a physician, um, and my identity as a teacher and my identity as a mom and a wife. Um, and then who I am as a Christian and having, being able to tie all of that into my spirituality is really important to me. And when I am personally like at a good place spiritually, because everybody has ups and downs in their yeah. spiritual life, but I find that when, when I'm having more of an up than a down, it makes everything else a lot easier. You know, it makes having a family and all the ups and downs that go with that uh, a lot easier to bear and a lot more even keel. Um, and so that relationship with God brings me a lot of joy and comfort too. Awesome. Um, I also want to ask, um, we talked, we talked about books here and there on and off, but if you're reading anything right now, awesome. But if you wanted to let anyone know, let everyone listening know one book that they should consider reading that may, may or may not change their outlook on things. Um, but one book that stuck out to you and that you keep you keep thinking about and maybe even rereading. I'd love to get that. I love Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. It's such a good book. It's Cutting so interesting. Cutting for Stone. Yeah. By the way, Verghese, that's a, that's a, that's a Christian name, right? Yeah. Okay. He, I, I don't know if, I assume he's Christian, I, I'm, I'm sure. But um, he actually had a, a he came to, um, give a talk once at, in, in medical school. And he's just really an amazing person. But his book, Cutting for a Stone, is, I love it so much because it really gives this perspective on medicine um, 
that is really unique. It's it's an entertaining book too. Mm. So from that on that level, I really love it, and it's a lot of deep symbolism as well. But I love his perspective on medicine because I know from kind of his his talks as well as um, you know I'm one of his close friends and colleagues is a mentor of mine and they share the uh, the same philosophy about medicine oh. very old school like very like they walk in and they within 90 with 90% of the time they can tell you what the diagnosis and the problem is just by history and physical just like basics 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 and they just don't teach medicine that same way anymore mm. um so the wealth of knowledge that he has and that you can really see shining through in his book um, it's really interesting because it ties in that like love and interest of medicine as well as, you know, there's like layers of um, politics as well as um, just a really good love story. Like it's just very interesting. A love story. Yeah. It's, it's kind of sad, but um, it's about family and um, medicine and uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting book. Huh. Yeah, it's it's very weird, but I love it. <laughs> I love a layered book, a complex book. Yes. Um, awesome. You know, I think that I think that wraps up a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Obviously, we can go for days just and I, I could go for days just picking your brain about how you view medicine in life and I think I have a lot of good insight from what you what you were able to tell me in these past 40 minutes. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to talk about? If anyone's listening right now, um Anything, any advice, any parting wisdom that you would want to leave with everyone listening right now? I would say that medicine isn't the end-all be-all. You know, if you find that you love it, great. But sometimes, sometimes it's about trusting the process more so than it is understanding what the process is at the time. You know, like my road to medical school was not a simple one. And when I went in, I wasn't even sure that I really wanted to be a doctor. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of times that happens. So trust that if the signs in your life are pointing in that direction, you just take that one step forward. You don't need to know the end. And like one of my favorite Bible verses is, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And I love that verse because it sort of describes how, like how we should follow God's will. It's not about headlights lighting up the entire road in front of you. It's not a lamp on a hill. It's the lamp guiding your feet. And unless you move forward within that little pool of light, you can't see the next step. It's just a small area that's lit. And that's all God wants is like enough light to take the next step Mm. and to be comforted knowing that he's right there with you and that his word and his, like he gives us information along the way that tells you if you're going in the right direction or not. And listening to that, I think, is really powerful because we, I think, feel like everything has to be in our control. And usually people in medical school, especially very type A personalities and want to have a plan for for everything. Um, But God's will doesn't really work that way. And I would never have found radiation oncology if I wasn't able to at least take that one step. When Even though I wasn't sure, but there were enough signs in my life at that time where I was like, okay, well, I guess... This is, I'm just going to take this step and see if I get in. And then if I get in, it'll sort of lead me to the next thing um, until ultimately I find myself doing exactly what I know I was born to do. Mm. And I think a lot of people get lost because they feel like they don't see the end goal. 
And I just want to, I guess, let people know that's okay. You don't have to see the end goal. In fact, you're not supposed to. Sometimes knowing the end goal would prevent you from taking those steps in the first place. And so if you just follow your immediate next step, it can sometimes lead you in unexpected places, but you just know that you're holding on to God's hand the whole time. Mm. That's refreshing to hear, (laughs) especially as someone with all sorts of anxieties and whatnots going into medical school, but that is refreshing to hear. Um, there's a quote that I always think about how we spend our days is how we spend our life. Mm-hmm. And so taking every, every step, one step at a time, one day at a time, um, really matters. Mm-hmm. I think that's all I have to be honest. I think cool. that's all I have. Um, yeah, this conversation was awesome because I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And I think your voice was just such a, such a necessary part of what I'm trying to do, which is honestly document all the conversations that I'm having with people that influence my life and people that I maybe I haven't even met yet, but I know that they have great, inf- they'll have a lot of influence on my, my choice and the choices of others too, as it pertains to medicine. And I'm trying to soak in as much knowledge as possible in the time I have. Um, but I thank you for accommodating me. Um, we're actually in your office right now. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I mentioned that in the beginning of the episode, but we're in your office right now. Um, and um, I just think your voice was an awesome, awesome, unique piece to the podcast and what I want to do with it. No, I'm privileged. I feel privileged that you asked me. I'm glad to be a part of this. It's of cool. course. Of course. Um, thank you so much. And oh, I'll see you in 30 minutes. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we're going to the same place, but um, I'm glad we were able to squeeze this in. Yes, definitely. Okay. Thank you so much. Well... You've reached the end of the episode. I don't know. I think bringing on my mentor as the second guest in the show gave the show, gave the podcast a little bit of structure and the voice it needed. Because what I'm trying to do is not only just find out about the latest and greatest in medicine and talk to the biggest and brightest. I'm also trying to document my own journey because I know if I'm struggling through it, there's going to be a lot of other people who are in the same boat as me. And so to find out about my mentor's day-to-day, how she approaches life in the clinic, her relationship with patients, and how she imbues her personality, her religion, and spirituality into all of that, it's eye-opening, it's refreshing. And so I'm super happy she was able to accommodate me on the show, and I'm super excited to release this one, having her as my second guest. Big life updates and changes in the near future, so wait for episode three, and I'll see you guys in the next one.